Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's collaborative mini-series with the Institute of Race Relations official journal, Race and Class. Over a five-part series, we have been speaking to contributors to the special issue on race, mental health and state violence. In this episode, we are really excited to be joined by one of the co-editors of this special issue, Monish Bhatia, who is a lecturer in criminology at Birkbeck. Hi, Manish. Hi, Chantel. Hi, Tiso. Thanks for inviting me over. I think these have been a set of some of the hardest episodes we've ever recorded just because they're just been so emotional. Like we've got a trigger warning basically on every episode. We appreciate how much sort of scholarly effort has gone into this, but how much emotionality has gone into producing this. It's, it just must have been so difficult. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think the research process in itself was quite difficult for me. I mean, if you think about it, we as researchers are using ourselves as a data collection tool. Usually, research is presented as an end result, as a finished product. That really takes away the important how you go about gathering the data and what impact does it have on you. I mean, I've been in interview situations where a person just lifts a stop and shows me how they've tried to slash themselves because they were so depressed at one point, uh, you know, being confronted to this highly racialized immigration regime, being treated like an animal, uh, dehumanized. And, you know, they were so completely hopeless. And this is what they did to themselves. And, you know, as a researcher, I've been shown that and it is hard to digest. There was at one point that I said to myself, I will have to stop writing and conducting further interviews, despite the fact that I used to give my participants warning. I mean, not warning, I would tell them that, you know, you can stop the interview anytime. You don't have to uh, answer questions if you don't have to. You can take breaks. You can also come out from the interview altogether if you if you want to do that. Everything is fine. Uh, but they would want to speak to me about these things. At one point, I was like, I need to also take care of myself. You know, I'm looking after my participants. I'm making sure that they are protected in every sense. But I have to make sure that I'm protected too. And I stopped for a few weeks and I went to occupational health and went for debriefing sessions. And uh, that's something that I suggest to all the early careers. If you're doing any research where the subjects are vulnerable, it's really important that you engage, uh, you know, with, with uh, occupational health. It's, it's important that you look after yourself because only when you're sharp, when you can understand what's going on, only then you can uh, communicate to the world what you've seen and what went on. 
a such a powerful introduction to this episode and yeah thank you so much for sharing that and thank you so much for that advice as well just to sort of set the parameters and the subject matter for your contribution as well as editing the special issue we're going to talk about one of the articles that you wrote and the title is racial surveillance and the mental health impacts of electronic monitoring on migrants I'm not going to lie to you I don't know how you feel about this tea but there was so much about electronic monitoring that I had no idea about. I just feel so ashamed that I just didn't know about how violent and oppressive electronic monitoring is. Common sense understanding, as it put across in the media, is it's a way of managing someone outside prison, which seems like common sense. As I was reading it, I was trying to think to myself, what will people what will people say against what you're saying in there? Because the picture you present when is a very human picture. The effects that it has on people beyond that public discourse is set around punishment, especially mm. around this uh, this concept. So, what is your argument in this? As you put it across, I will go a couple of steps backwards before I explain the argument. Electronic monitoring was through the Criminal Justice Act 1991, and it was implemented to address the prison overcrowding and rising cost of imprisonment in in uh, England and Wales. So in a way, it was implemented to divert people away from custody. But proportionately speaking, England and Wales currently has more people on electronic monitoring uh, in the entire world uh, compared to the entire world. And at the same time, the prison rates have not necessarily gone down. It just makes you think whether whether it's making sense to have that or is it simply just a net widening measure, which means administrative changes that result in people getting more more punishment or different type of punishment. So where the judge would administer a discharge, now that judge also has the option of electronic monitoring. So is the judge, instead of administering a discharge, actually using electronic monitoring? Also, when people violate monitoring conditions within the criminal justice context, uh, they tend to get uh, called back in so they can go back into prison for violating the probation condition. But the effectiveness of the electronic monitoring has been inconclusive. No one knows whether it really stops people from reoffending. And Ministry of Justice, there was one document which quite clearly says the, you know, it's inconclusive. The evidence is inconclusive, but they think it's a good mechanism. In America, it's also been widely used. Uh, in one of the articles, Michelle Alexander calls it a new Jim Crow because all these different measures are targeted towards black and brown bodies in different ways and forms. Uh, and to trap them in this carceral circuit from which they cannot escape. Also, the cost of running the monitoring is not exactly cheap. It's quite an expensive affair. I think between 2017 and 2024, it is estimated to cost 130 million. And those who get these contracts are the private security contractors, uh, which operate in a very tight, small market. Uh, and some of them have an active, serious fraud investigation against them. When people are subjected to electronic monitoring, not much is known about the impact on them, how the impact differs from group to group. So how would men be affected by monitoring when compared to women? 
how a black person on monitoring would be uh, affected as opposed to white person. So there's a huge void in research. So while I'm talking about migrants, more specifically non-nationals who have been subjected to criminal sanction and following that, they've been given electronic monitoring as a condition, but that condition doesn't come from criminal justice system. That condition comes from immigration system, which is administrative, okay, which is not criminal justice matters, an administrative matter. There is a void within in the criminal justice literature, but at the same time, there's also a void within the migration literature and how do people um, react to monitoring. So I think that's what drove me to write this piece to address the void in two different sets of literatures. Surely when we're looking at these dynamics, for my mind, it kind of seems to be driving it is the idea of safety. From the, the point of view in the criminal justice system, safety of society, and from the point of immigration, safety or integrity of the nation. Mm. So through those lenses, it seems that those those questions of whether the, the effects on certain particular groups are not in question, they're looking at groups as in how we protect the, the whole you're putting forward what the justification of these dehumanizing practices are by the state and I think they're interesting um, because you can see how easy it is for the state to adopt this universalized approach of safety I think this has come up quite a few times in this series that we've been talking about and I think it's a really important point T because you're able to get your average Joe and Jane to think that these kind of dehumanizing practices are sensible for the quote unquote good of the nation. But actually, we obviously don't think they we obviously don't think they are on this podcast. Yeah, no. And when you actually look at the detail that Manisha has as that has outlined throughout this article and the interview um, data, it's just I think one of the reasons why I said I felt ashamed about not understanding this is, is because you point out just how dehumanizing, how invasive, how violent this type of surveillance is. Hmm. Even if you're just talking about like the state controlling how you move and where you can move, that like, you can talk about that. But then you've also got the psychological impact of not being able to sort of plan your life because the state is like this constant like ghost on the back of your shoulder. So I think mm. that there's like, there's so many layers to it that I just hadn't really thought about. And I think the way you write, as with the whole of this special issue we were saying with Eddie Bruce Jones the other day, it's just so clear and so to the point and so radical, whilst also being very highly empathetic and compassionate to your participants, which is obviously really important to us here on the podcast. What your introduction there, Manish, as well, sort of shows, yeah, that gap between criminal justice literature and literature on migration and the, what the Home Office does to people is really interesting because if the Home Office says that they're protecting migrants, the population, asylum seekers, what have you, people that aren't legalised, quote unquote legalised, how can they mm. say that they're protecting people by using a punitive method to do that? Mm. There is something called as carceral humanism when people say, you know, electronic monitoring is a softer option when compared to prison. Prisons are tough, monitoring is soft. It's only uh, humane to release people on tags. 
but obviously Angela Davis, Michelle Alexander, in different ways, they have attacked such reformists and non-abolitionist alternatives, saying that they disproportionately impact people who are poor and people who are of color, okay, minority groups. With regards to immigration system, within criminal justice system, it was implemented in 1991. The immigration systems, it was implemented in 2004. And there was a difference in the implementation. So when a judge in criminal court sanctions electronic monitoring, the judge will give you a determinate sentence. They will say you'll be spending uh, on monitoring and curfew eight weeks. But after that, you know that the the monitor will be coming out, the tag will be coming out. But the immigration system does not impose any upper limit on time. So even when they detain people, so even when people go in detention centers, there's a term used, indefinite detention. What does indefinite detention actually mean is that you can be held in immigration detention for as long as possible. Okay, it, it really is subjected to the home office. Okay, if they want to hold you for three years, they can hold you for three years in immigration detention. So in criminal justice system, those who have got that punishment, they count their days down. But in immigration system, you are actually counting your days up when it comes to confinement. So when they put people on monitors uh, and off late, they are targeting people who have convicted some sort of an offense. So foreign nationals who have committed some sort of a crime, they say they're targeting people who have committed serious crimes. So they know and they they tag them after these individuals have submit, uh, completed their sentences. So it's not that tagging is coming half the way through. OK, tagging is coming after people complete their sentences. They are released into the community and then they are tagged uh, and monitored so that they don't abscond. They don't run away. So they stay in that deportable state. There's a term that a sociologist called Barack Kaleh has used, and it's called departheid, which means the system is created in a way that it keeps you in a segregated space. Whether that space is created through electronic monitors uh, or through detention centers or through some other means, such as army barracks off late, uh, you know, it is... It is to keep you segregated until you are deported, okay? So it's like keeping all the deportable people somehow under the state surveillance. And I think that's what electronic monitoring is doing. The bail guidance quite clearly says, uh, you know, those who are foreign nationals and who have offended uh, can be subjected to electronic monitoring. And that's what has happened in this case. People are subjected to electronic monitoring after completing their sentences which I think uh, is quite serious because they experience it as a form of sentence as opposed to being released. I think it ties into the whole notion of a stigma. Like you're wearing something physical that marks you out. You're also known as you're probably living in a stigmatized area. All these things contribute to that, that sense of otherness and, that, and outsideness. When I read your stuff, it's hard to think, well, how do you argue against the inhumanity of it all? The idea of separating these people because they see them as a threat. Mm. that's how it's put across the narrative it's so bad that i don't know how people could disagree with it like, it's so bad but people will mm. genuinely will say they deserve to have to have a tag because they either the nation is under threat or my area is being overrun or i need to know where they are all these arguments are ones you hear very frequently 
especially when it comes to policing people who are either failed failed uh, asylum seekers or have committed a crime. I think some of the reports, the crimes that you put in your book are like fake passports. Mm-hmm. People will see that they take a very absolute view. If you've broken the law, you deserve this. What's the alternative to electronic tagging? Is it possible that the sort of discourses and the sort of punitive inclinations of some people to think that this electronic monitoring is necessary could be obliterated, questioned and get people to change their mind by understanding the detail of what's involved? Is it because people don't really understand what is happening? And could it be that the way we bring the people that Tiso described with us is by bring in these sorts of literatures these things that you this article that you've written down into the public domain i mean tiso has actually raised quite a number of points and the first point that you mentioned is about the presentation of uh, an illegal migrant so you know illegal migrant to me is a colorblind term because when when the discourse of illegal migrant is presented it's usually you know they are uh, they are taking away jobs. They are coming into this country to drain the resources. They are committing crime. They are inherently criminogenic. They are causing a mayhem. And all this atta- is attached to the term illegal or these days even migrant. So you don't have to like say anything further because al- it's already become a pejorative term in that sense. Whenever people talk about illegal migration, what follows is colorblind racism, okay? Because the term comes with, it's, it's a loaded term. It it's, should not be taken easily uh, or lightly. Uh, and I think that's one thing we need to start talking about more widely, about colorblind racism resulting from the way terminology of illegal migration and how it's been presented by the politicians and the media. And the second that comes that follows is uh, punitive laws and policies and uh, reproduction of racist structures. Ponilla Silva has addressed that really well in his work, how the racial structures are reproduced through the colorblind discourses. So the second point that you mentioned was about electronic monitoring is seen as necessary to address the dangerousness of certain groups and keep society safe. And I do think that this discourse of dangerousness in itself is racialized. If you see my previous piece where I've written about immigration, imprisonment and racial violence or racist violence, sorry. There's one thing that runs throughout the piece is this narrative of danger where those who were subjected to, uh, those who were sentenced to prison, they were constantly saying that they kept telling me that I had false documents and therefore I'm danger to the public. And these were largely men. Uh, I'm still writing a piece on women and, and what does that actually mean? Uh, how can we actually view women's incarceration in this context? But with men, it was largely about racialized danger uh, or masculinity in itself is being constructed, racialized masculinity mas- masculinity in itself being constructed as dangerous. Uh, so when that happens, especially when it comes to foreign national uh, offenders or foreign nationals who have offended, we see this use of term danger, they're dangerous. You know, we need to do something about it. We've seen what happened to uh, Abu Qatada, for instance, who was constructed as he was not even convicted. 
he was subjected, he had to go through proceedings in Jordan and he couldn't go there because he feared that they will torture him in Jordan or something in those lines. But he was also subjected to electronic monitoring because of this underlying discourse that he's risk and danger to the nation and we need to keep a tab on him. In a similar way, people in this research were also subjected to electronic monitoring because they pose a threat to, to the nation in some way or the other. They would abscond uh, and they would go underground and we need to make sure that we have a tab on them, keep a tab on them until they're deported. And uh, that's how it's been rationalized. In America, they've taken it a step forward. They have actually uh, attached people with GPS monitors so in England and Wales, they still use the radio frequency monitor. So someone calls your home to check, you know, whether you are still tagged. But in America, it's connected to a satellite, so it gives a real-time location uh, as to where you are. And they have conducted one of the biggest workplace raids in the American history, where 700 illegalized migrants were rounded up and taken in by, by the ICE. So what they did, they targeted, they used the data of where people were going, what they were doing when they were subjected to these electronic monitoring devices, which produced the actionable intelligence. And they ended up raiding a, a chicken factory where, where undocumented migrants were working. So while GPS has not yet come into the immigration domain in the UK, it has already been uh, implemented in the criminal justice domain. And the Home Office has already indicated that they will be moving to GPS within the immigration domain as well. So I think that this is a very concerning development. Do you think the development of electronic tagging is it fits with the kind of logics, increasing rationalization of capitalism, the streamlining of things and working of data matches what, what we're seeing in society as a general trend. So you become, it becomes a more efficient way of doing X versus, say, traditional probation and pastoral care. Yeah. Again, that's really, uh, really important question. I think it's yes, because what probation did, it was rehabilitation and care, making sure that people are successfully rehabilitated and reintegrated into the community and you know they become good citizens again etc cetera, etc cetera. but that was taken away because the management or the risk management rationale took over so it's simply about managing people rather than rehabilitating them and we have seen that over the past 20 years so how the idea of probation has been removed and it's simply about managing, you know, risky bodies in single inverted commas. But when it comes to the immigration system, rehabilitation and care is not even a question. Because as I mentioned earlier, all the individuals that I'm talking about, they were not even uh, sentenced by the criminal justice system for electronic. So electronic monitoring was not a condition enforced by the criminal justice system. It was the immigration system that decided uh, they will tag these people, right? So rehabilitation and care is not even a question there because they want to deport these people from the country. They don't want to rehabilitate and reintegrate them into the society. That's not the rationale. So in that way, then it makes you question why exactly are these people subjected 
through this excessive surveillance technology. As with all the articles within this special issue, when Tiso and I have sort of had our pre-discussions about it, we have been sort of speechless, a bit distressed and upset. But one of the things I think, Tiso, you said about Manisha's article about electronic monitoring is that it kind of fits within the sort of legacies of colonial policing within the empire. And obviously, you can there's lots of um, scholars that have written extensively on this. But there is something very interesting about that sort of the evolution of mon- quote unquote monitoring or what it's now now is electronic monitoring obviously you couldn't have electronic monitoring in 19th century but um it's there is something very interesting about that sort of notion of the continuity of britain as an empire and the colonial legacies which live on and how actually electronic monitoring is very much consistent within that sorry t i just took your analysis but that is what you said to me on the phone (laughs) (laughs) you bang on yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's one reason why uh, I I kept the theory section in that piece separate so that it stands out as to how, what I'm thinking and how I'm going to go about with this article. And I go to Foucault, uh, largely because Foucault has such a huge influence on surveillance studies. I mean, he, he is one of the uh, key scholars. So when you think about surveillance, you think about Foucault. And one thing that Foucault does is that he draws upon uh, his genealogy comes from Bentham. Uh, and Bentham was the one who created the idea of panopticon, which was uh, while working in Russia, he came across uh, a central inspection principle and he proposed uh, a prison or inspection house where the guard will be at the center and there will be cells at the outer level, etc. Bentham's design didn't really materialize in reality. You know, prisons that were constructed didn't really exactly precisely follow what he did. But Foucault took his ideas further and he said, this is what society, you know, this is what it could be, this is what surveillance is. But what Simone Brown does, she does something very interesting. And I felt that Simone Brown's discussion needs to come into criminology and sociology both. What Simone Brown shows in in her book is that she goes back and she says, well, even before reaching Russia, Bentham had actually traveled on uh, one of the Turkish slave ships. And he's written in his previous letters about traveling on slave ships with, uh, you know, slave women held under the hatches. So at the top of the ship, uh, the slavers could look down and see what's happening at the bottom. And then she uses the Brooks as an example to show uh, how the surveillance actually operates. And it predates uh, Bentham's visit to Russia. So she shows that the origins of surveillance lies in the origins of slavery. Uh, And I completely agreed with her. Her argument was so persuasive all the way through. It's something that you could not dismiss. And I was like, actually, you know what? That actually makes complete sense to me. You know, this is exactly how it's operating. And we need to start acknowledging how surveillance, uh, you know, how racial surveillance operates on different groups. And, and this is the way forward. So I, I agree with Tiso. And I think uh, setting that theoretical argument uh, was really important. Also, I don't know whether you guys know, 
moving slightly away from electronic monitoring that home office also had used DNA technology in the past in live asylum cases uh, to establish where these people were coming from and their nationality, which is quite uh, deeply uh, embedded within the, within the discourses of race and racism both. So while DNA is not used in active life cases, it is still used in the family cases. But to get away from DNA, Home Office says that we don't want you to use DNA, but if you wish to use DNA, we won't say no to it. So basically in family cases where a refugee, say mother is here and she wants to call her children from elsewhere, uh, they can then use the DNA uh, to make a case and you know there are different ways in which the home office has subjected migrants to surveillance there was a telephone tapping in detention at one point i remember one of my subjects was telling me i thought that he's being paranoid uh and i felt really guilty afterwards because soon after that uh you know they released a statement saying that they found that the phones of detainees were getting tapped uh so yeah there's like so many different mechanisms attached to it, and it does replicate uh, colonial and slavery structures, yes. We know from history, and even at the contemporary moment, how the majority population are quite comfortable to live side by side with this form of oppression on brown and black bodies. So even when it's brought to their detention, they are quite happy to accept that. And so you can go, you can look around the world, you can see that how they, how the Chinese population manages the weaker population right now to how we manage people right here today in 2021. Mm. And regardless of when we point out how horrific this system is, people are quite happy to vote for this on the ticket of law and order, on the ticket of immigration, and dismiss the actual human suffering that it caused for the most minor offences, for an infraction on sometimes it might be the way I think because I think differently or because I, I, was, I brought on a different passport, whatever the reason will be. And it's the fact that people can sit here and live by by these systems. And given this, it's it's kind of developed, like I said, through this colonial lens. They're quite used to the idea of separation because they've never had to be a victim of it, really. Is it possible to retrieve or find compassion, radical empathy, love and understanding to mobilise people to understand the, the mobilised people that aren't going to be affected by this to understand like how violent this is and it is possible like people being able to push back against that law and order anti-immigration um, ticket that you were talking about Tiso it would be good to hear your thoughts Manish on what you think the hopeful possibilities are to sort of getting people to understand why this is these aren't systems that we want to have within our society anymore. I completely agree with you to start with. And I think research is the first step, bringing people's narratives to the forefront because they're rendered so voiceless at times. Although I know some of my subjects were actually taking the matters into their own hands and they were going and giving public talks while still being subjected to monitoring. But it's really important to get their voices uh, across uh, in any any shape or form, to be honest, largely because they are subjected to a system which does not believe them all the way through. And there was one point in my teaching career that 
students had no idea what was detention center and I had to go back and explain to them what is detention center and what it actually does. Uh, in the same way, people don't necessarily know that there is electronic monitoring and it, it's operating in this way within the uh, immigration system and it's operating in this way within the criminal justice system. And we don't quite know how different groups are reacting to electronic monitoring within criminal justice. We do know from David Lamy's report that there's a disproportionality within the criminal justice system. Uh, and we don't quite know how uh, black and brown bodies are subjected to this mechanism and what are the consequences of this type of punishment on them. In a similar way, people don't quite know what is uh, what, what is the consequences or impact of this punishment, because this is a punishment, regardless of the fact that it's coming from uh, immigration system and it's an administrative matter. People are experiencing it as a form of punishment. I think to reverse a culture of disbelief, so that culture of disbelief has not only seeped into the home office and government departments, but somehow I feel that it's also seeping into society because, you know, it, a section of population are meant to believe that these people are coming here because, you know, we are soft touch. Education is the only way forward. We need to constantly strive to stand in solidarity with, with everyone, but at the same time, educate people that this is not exactly what is happening. And um, I use this article for my teaching and I show students that there is, a, there is an impact you know, this monitoring technology is not a, a, a bracelet, okay? It's not a piece of jewelry. Because when you just read Sun and Daily Mail, you know, they always show Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton wearing electronic monitoring, you know? So it's a sign of being a party animal, being subjected to an alcohol monitoring. I was like, it really does not operate in that way when it comes to poor and poor people of color. Uh, you know, there is an impact of it. You are being watched constantly. For for people in my research, it almost they almost felt that home office was there in their house, in their living space. Every time they were breathing, the tag was still on them, right? And, you know, that does have serious psychological impact. One of the most powerful parts of your article is particularly towards the end where you talk about um, the participants that you interviewed not presenting themselves as passive victims. Um, and I just wanted to read an extract of the article. You say, individuals were not passive and rather actively resisted such coercive methods. Some approached the elected members of parliament in their area, either on their own or through gathering support, accompanied by church authorities, charities, through social workers, doctors and other individuals in authoritative positions and demanded the removal of electronic monitoring. Some frequently delivered speeches at events and raised awareness of the practice and called for solidarity and support. One of the interviewees was in the process of suing the Home Office and seeking compensation for the harms caused due to the imposition of monitoring and curfew. Whereas during a repeat interview, Ali, one of your participants, mentioned his intention to go on a hunger strike to protest against the monitoring. And, and then you go on to, at the end of the article, talk about how Ali did eventually um, get released from the monitoring after a week of hunger strike. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, 
um, one of the things that we tr- we've been trying to do more recently on the podcast is sort of retrieving these histories of um, subordination, marginalization, violent treatment by the state, but also positioning these histories in relation to resistance and not in line with sort of a pa- passiveness and victim victimization. Like these are people that are fighting for their lives and mm-hmm. have been doing that in very creative, imaginative, authoritative, self-deprecative methods like it is it's such a powerful way that you end the article and I just think it's sort of a real call to arms with regards to those of us that are doing sort of interviews and ethnographies to make sure that we're presenting people within the fullness of their agency yeah I completely agree with you and I I sent this article to Ali which is a pseudonym uh just to point out uh because he always uh insists uh, that if I write something, I should be sending the piece to him because he's currently doing uh, a university course. So he was not so long ago uh, recognized, uh, but right now he's not getting the permanent leave to remain because he's got a criminal conviction, which is the false document charge, uh, imprisonment resulting from false document. The two things he told me, and he told me the one thing that he didn't quite mention to me is that every time he called the monitoring officers telling them that he's really not feeling well and this tag needs to come out, they would laugh. They would think that he's just being silly. How could a tag cause so much damage uh, or so much emotional trauma they could not simply comprehend? So they would just ignore his phone call and just hang up on him. But the other thing he reminded me is that as soon as they released him from the tag, they also refused his asylum. So he had to go back and restart all over again. Uh, but he, he, he was, yeah, he resisted just like all the other participants in different ways and forms. Uh, and it was quite a desperate resistance you know, subjecting your body to uh, a prolonged hunger strike uh, is quite an extreme measure, but it also shows that how dire the situation actually is. So when you spoke about Lindsay Lohan, I started thinking about the idea that these tags represent a control of undesirable behaviours, undesirability. Mm. And I don't think, so a tag represents, you're actually living with the fact that you're undesirable. And so already we have a racialized understanding of desirability in this mm-hmm. and, and a racialized understanding of beauty. So now these people are having to live with being undesirable, mm-hmm. not just in, in the embodiment, but now you physically mark me. The state has marked me as undesirable. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the mental toll of that, right? Mm-hmm. Already we, 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 are, we are understanding of living as racialized bodies being undesirable. But on top of this, another layer of it, the weight of that is hard for people to understand if they don't understand what it's like to be undesirable in Western states. How do you explain that to people? How do I get across the the kind of heaviness of that load of carrying that mental weight? Yeah, I mean, the entire article has actually shown that being marked as undesirable or being marked as the other, being marked as someone who's not welcome, being marked as someone who's un-British, being marked as someone who's dangerous, all of that has serious psychological effect. So even when, even in the criminal justice system, those who get sentenced to electronic monitoring, they have also consistently mentioned about the dehumanizing impact of the tag. 
because it marks you as someone dirty, you know, someone who has done something horribly wrong. Uh, as one of the women was mentioning that when she went out with her kid while she was on tag, every time uh, someone saw the tag when she was in the park, they would call her a pedo. So they would automatically assume that she was uh, convicted for sex offense. But at the same time, they would because she was black, she was twice as much uh, dangerous. So she would she was constantly constantly saying that you know when I just simply don't like to go out because whenever the tag becomes visible, people call me X, Y, and Z. And you know she was in a very white space in a very uh, working class white neighborhood where there there's a larger degree of discontent because the way media and politicians present that you know these individuals are coming into the country to take the resources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And people usually get dispersed in those areas without any further thought uh, by the Home Office, uh, without any exercise uh, to bring the communities face to face and create friendly relations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And tabloid press have seriously not done much. They've created more fractures. They have reproduced these racialized narratives, etc. So yes, uh, you know. Uh, being marked does have consequences and uh and it is all about marking people it's all about segregating people it's keeping them in the state of deportability uh and i think that was a leading cause of psychological uh or mental distress or mental health exacerbation that people went through while they were subjected to this technology Manish, that was so powerful. Do you know what? I think this episode is like one of my favourite episodes ever. I'm not joking. Like, I just think it's so not because the subject matter, I've enjoyed the subject matter, just because the clarity and how you're able to link something like electronic monitoring to so many parts of the state. Um, and I think it's just a really important and informative episode for anyone that's trying to think about how we stand in solidarity with people that are marginalised and become deportable by the state. Like it's so, it's harrowing, but equally I think it's this is horrible, really, man. It's, it's heavy, man. It's really heavy. So, Manish, thank you so much, first of all, for co-editing this special issue. And thank you so much for coming on the show and educating us and the listeners. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Manish. Thank you so much, listeners, for listening. Um, thank you for supporting us. Patrons, we've got another episode for you now over on the Patreon. And we'll be back next week for the final instalment of this series. Thank you again. Bye. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 